Uh, we are in First and Second Samuel now. We're on First Samuel 16. We're going to read the first 13 verses together. If you don't have a Bible, uh, it'll be on the screen above. If you don't have a Bible, period, we can help you out with that. Uh, there's, there's a couple on the back, so um, make sure you grab one of those if you don't have one. <clears throat> First Samuel 16. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him for being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite. For I have provided myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. You shall anoint, anoint for me him who I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him, trembling, and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by and he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest. But behold, he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Would you pray with me? <clears throat> oh God, all things are seen by you. Even our hearts, the secret parts of our hearts that we hide from everyone. And God, as we are exposed before you, we pray that you would open up our hearts. And that your word would pierce us. That your word would shape us. God, we ask that we would see as we should see. That we would hear as we should hear. That, God, you would make us more and more into the image of your Son, Jesus. Amen. So, up until this point in 1 Samuel, we have been increasingly dissatisfied with Saul. Saul was, uh, in some sense, the people's choice as king. It wasn't the people who pointed him out, but Saul was the kind of king the people of Israel wanted. Israel wanted a king like everybody else had a king. Saul was 
a tall, good-looking man. That was seemingly his chief credential. He, was a, he just looked like a king. So when everybody got together and sees tall Saul over there, they say, pick the tall guy. Um, and the tall guy, it turns out, at first he was pretty humble, and he seems kind of great, but very quickly the narrative turns and he becomes, he becomes weak. He becomes morally weak. He becomes cowardly. Uh, in previous chapters, we've seen him outshone by his son, who has more courage and faith and obedience. And Saul has the kingdom ripped from him because of his lack of obedience, his lack of faithfulness. Now, Saul is still the king. But here in 1 Samuel 16, God speaks to the prophet Samuel and tells him that the time for mourning what Saul has failed to become is over. And now it's time to meet the new king of Israel because the Lord has already seen and chosen one. So Samuel goes to Bethlehem and we can already see kind of the the neuroses and paranoia working their way in Saul because Samuel is concerned that Saul will just hear that he's going somewhere and he'll want to kill him. And we just kind of already get the hint of the kind of person that Saul is in the process of becoming. And by the end of the chapter, we'll see maybe a little bit why. But Samuel goes to Bethlehem and the tribe of Judah, and he goes with this cover of making a sacrifice, but he knows he's going to Jesse's house. If you've been reading thus far, if you were to start at the beginning of the Bible and, and read up to this point, this is not the first mention of Jesse. Uh, if you, there's a little book, the book of Ruth, that at the end mentions Jesse. Because Ruth is actually the, the mother, the grandmother of Jesse. And ultimately the great-grandmother of David. So here they are in Bethlehem. And making this sacrifice. And the sons of Jesse pass in front. Now, one uh, commentator, Peter Lightheart, he notes that, that David uh, is the seventh son. It, it's hard to see that in the way that this text presents it in the language. But 1 Chronicles 2 makes it clear that David is the seventh son of Jesse. Um, but he's only the fourth named son. So there are three sons with names that pass forward. There's some unnamed sons. Sorry, guys. And then there's David. And Lightheart says, we are meant to see David on this, as the seventh son who's meant to bring the, the Sabbath rest on the seventh day to Israel. He is the, the seven that brings the rest of God to the country. However, he's only the fourth one bearing a name And the tribe that he's from is the tribe of Judah. Judah is the fourth-born son of Jacob. And Judah has this blessing proclaimed over him by his father that says, somehow surprising, the fourth son will have the, the rule, the rod of rule in his tribe. So it seems like the author is trying to cue us to a couple things, that David is this king that brings rest for Israel, and he is this rightful descendant of the promise to Judah, to bear the royal rod of rule. And David has been out doing shepherding business. For some reason, he doesn't 
like get the memo or nobody thinks to go get him. And they say, oh, you know, we've got one more here. Let's go get David. And for some reason, David passes before Samuel and God says, this is the one. He's, he is what we'll come to know him as, a man after my heart. And apparently, David is quite the looker himself. He's, he's beautiful. Um, and possibly a redhead. He's ruddy feature. He's got lighter skin, so maybe it's red from being in the sun all the time. But this young, vibrant kid who was watching the sheep passes before, and God says, this is the one. The Spirit of God rushes on him. Now, the the text moves on from there. We didn't read this portion out, out loud. But there is an immediate contrast in 1 Samuel 16 between David, whom God has chosen, and Saul, whom God has unchosen. Because Saul, it says in the verse after the one that we read, he's tormented by harmful spirits sent from God. He's cursed. He's being judged. And whether that's, that's a, a euphemism to describe mental illness or whether it's a literal description of what God is doing and how he's judging Saul, either way, there's judgment falling on him. And he needs basically the constant companionship of somebody to soothe his troubled mind. And David, in the irony of ironies, goes to serve the present king as the rising and future king. And this is just kind of the, the paradigm that has already been established in Samuel. That the replacement for the spiritual father, as it were, kind of moves into the father's house. We saw it with Eli and Samuel, and we're seeing it again with Saul and David. So David, the future king, moves into the house of the former king. The Spirit of God rushing on David, the chosen one, even as the Spirit has departed from Saul who has been chosen for judgment. And this, is, this text has, is, is obviously very important in the book of 1 Samuel, 1 and 2 Samuel. It's this key moment when the narrative shifts off the first king of Israel to the greatest king of Israel. David will be the greatest king in Israel's history. Now, there, there will be kings with more land and more wealth and more power. But Israel rightly identifies David as its greatest king. At, at his heart and at the heart of what kingship is, David models what a king should be. And David, we find him first in these unexpected circumstances. Forgotten or passed over by his own family while taking care of these stupid, smelly sheep out in the fields. Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. This is, this is how God corrects Samuel. Now remember, Samuel is not a dummy. Samuel has been the judge and prophet of God in Israel, and we only see good things said about Samuel. Samuel hears God when nobody else hears him. Samuel rightly sees what Israel fails to see about choosing a king. Samuel is not in any way a deficient character. 
And so the first person that he sees, Eliab, is a, apparently somebody that everybody looks at and says, man, that guy's got good stuff coming for him. Whatever it is, he's, he's winsome, he's good looking, he's the oldest. I mean, all the recipe for success, it's all there. And Samuel says, this has got to be why I'm in Bethlehem, is Eliab. Now, we, we kind of expect our prophets to, to be like on the nose right away, right? It, we, we expect Samuel, if he's always like we expect prophets to be, to see and, and recognize immediately, no, that's not the one. But Samuel himself, the follower of God, prophet of God, he does what is natural to everyone. He looks at what he sees. He judges the book by its cover and says, that is the one. Because this is the way people work, right? This is the inclination of us all. We make all of our choices pretty much immediately based off of what we see. We choose the people who are most like us. We choose the people who are good at the things that we want to be good at. And we just naturally assume that the exterior and the interior match. I was um, showing this music video, I guess, to my kids a couple days ago. My, my daughter, Ryan, really likes this singer, Lauren Daigle. Daigle? Daigle. Is that it? Okay. Lauren Daigle. Um, and I had seen this uh, video of her singing with John Foreman from Switchfoot. And I thought of Ryan, and I said, she needs to see this. And I put it on the, the TV so everyone could see and could hear and John Foreman, who's great, does his part, and then it switches to her part. And it's the, kind of the first time that you see her as her voice comes in. And she's got an incredible voice, very unique, um, dynamic young voice. And it's a beautiful song. It's sung very beautifully. And uh, my younger daughter, Allie, is looking at her and saying, she has a beautiful voice. She must be a good person. And I totally understood why she said that. It's a totally understandable thing to say. Because this woman is singing a good song and singing it well, and she naturally made the connection, she must be a good person inside. I have no idea if that's true. So I didn't say, like, no, she's actually terrible. Because I have no idea. In fact, my inclination was probably to agree with her. It just sounded so beautiful. It's like, how could something so beautiful not come from a person who's beautiful inside? But I guess as, as you grow up, you start to learn, actually, quite a lot that happens. A lot of times, it's easier to represent something on the surface that is missing and bankrupt on the inside. And yet, we still make that same kind of judgment. 
all the time. And, and maybe it's, it's not as obvious and clearly stated as my daughter did. But by our actions, we often do the same. We find the people that are most attractive to us, the cleanest people, or maybe we say, you know, we don't really care what it looks or like, but we'd go to the, the category of cool, and we say, I'm going to just hang out with the coolest people. And we just assume that these people are good and right people. And what's scarier is that we trick ourselves into treating ourselves that way. We look at the exterior of our own lives without looking any deeper about the more hidden interior, and we can fool ourselves into being okay with us based on how we perform on the outside. And then you can coast by for a long time purely on your ability to be accepted or liked or proficient at this or that. But for all of us, these moments of crises come, and sometimes they are public, and sometimes they are private. And what really lies beneath that surface gets cracked open and we are jarred to realize maybe we ourselves are not quite so right as we, as we hoped. It's not that we just look outward and judge other people by the exterior. We judge ourselves by the exterior. So on one level, this, this scripture is challenging us to not look at other people based on the surface. And that is hard enough to do. But another way the Scriptures point is squarely at ourselves and reminding you, actually, God sees beyond your outward appearance as well. God looks at your heart. That, that is uncomfortable and a little bit alarming. Because what many of us will do our entire lives is work very hard so that no one sees us as our exposed true selves. For some of us, we work ever so slightly to kind of adjust the mirrors, the angles of sight at us. Others of us are working hard to be wildly different than what's on the inside. There are many people in this room who are thinking right now, if people knew this, this, or this about me, I would die. I would be mortified. It, it can be behavior. It can be addiction. It can be things that are far less glaring than that. But if, you, if people really knew how anxious and hungry I was for their approval. They would never want anything to do with me. That is the secret battle that we are all engaged in. 
for all of our lives. The choice of David is significant because God says the criteria by which I am fooled and by which I use to fool other people is not the criteria that God uses. So in some sense, it is scary to hear what God says here about why he chose David. But there is something here also that is meant to allay your fears. David is the seventh son. David is either forgotten or deemed irrelevant to the conversation by his own family. David is not expected to be anything significant. In the ancient Near East, the firstborn is what matters. And I've said this before, but as a firstborn son, I hardly endorse that that philosophy is correct. We are what matters in the world. However, God skips the firstborn son in the second, the third, and the fourth, and the fifth, and the sixth. Now, everything hinges on the firstborn son in this culture. Everything. That's why when the father dies, the older son gets twice as much. All the chips basically are pushed onto the firstborn son to carry the hopes of everything. The expectation of everybody looking in on every family is that the firstborn son will carry the hopes of the family. And yet, what does God do here? He chooses the seventh and youngest. And this is not the first time that God does this. This is a pattern established in the Old Testament that God repeatedly and often chooses the unexpected younger son. Starting in Genesis, in the beginning of Genesis, it is not the older Cain that is viewed as the hero, but it is Abel and his replacement Seth that is the line which God chooses. When we get to uh, Isaac having two sons, it is not Esau the firstborn that is chosen. It is his younger brother. He's a twin, but he came out second, and that counts. Jacob is the younger son, and Jacob the younger son is chosen. And among Jacob's 12 sons, it is not his oldest son that is chosen. It is Joseph, the second youngest, that is favored. And it is the fourth son, Judah, who gets this promise of rule. God regularly chooses the younger son. Because what he regularly chooses to say to Israel is that God is a God of unexpected favor. The people who you would expect to be the normal avenues of God's power and promise, God chooses to go to the unseen ones. Because He doesn't want anybody getting the idea that anybody but Him is carrying the story. He does not choose the advantage, the most likable, the most likely Because God continually puts himself in the center of the story to say, no, I will be the one to advance the plot. So we here, the people who are constantly hiding, 
behind the appearance and the outward exterior, the seen, the visible. You and I can be terrified that we will be exposed in the middle of ourselves. But God is trying to tell you throughout the entire narrative of Scripture that God always chooses the unseen and unexpected. I had a, a history professor um, when I was in seminary whose father was a friend of Billy Graham's. And my professor remembers nights spent around the table with Billy Graham, which is pretty cool. And he brought in home movies from very early things that, that Billy Graham did. Um, which was great because you could see and hear this passion of a young Billy Graham that I, I had never really seen before. And what my professor said was, um, Billy Graham was not the best preacher. He, he wasn't. If you listen to him, he doesn't seem that remarkable. I've heard preachers better than him for sure. And he said, that's not what made him special, his ability to preach. What made Billy Graham special was his heart, that he, would, he was absolutely convinced that if God would not move by the power of his spirit, then nothing would happen. And what he wanted most was for Jesus to be lifted up. And he was absolutely dependent, not on his skill, he knew exactly what he was. But he was dependent on the power of God to be what he could not be. And that is what changed a B-plus preacher into a man who preached to more people than anyone ever. Because God comes through for unexpected and unseen people. But that itself is not enough for God to tell His people. Because many of us can hear that message and get delusions. If I stay unseen enough, maybe God will then bring me into the spotlight somehow. We can easily crave the spotlight. Easily crave that there may yet be hope for me to one day be famous, to one day be Billy Graham or the equivalent of your industry. And yet, to believe and to hope that even, to miss would be to miss the point of what God is doing in Scripture, which is to take the spotlight off of Saul and David and anyone else and to put it on himself. Because ultimately, the king of Israel that was unseen and unexpected was never more clearly identified and exemplified in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the son born in suspicious circumstances to Jesse's own house. Born unheralded except by the kind of people 
that David was, these shepherd people. Jesus spends his life, early life moving from the land of slavery in Egypt to an unknown town in Galilee, displaced and unhomed. Rising to prominence somehow miraculously because of the work of God. The prophet Isaiah will see ahead and see him coming and describe him, the servant of Israel, like this. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. Skipping down in Isaiah 53 says, he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Jesus is the Passover one. Unremarkable on the surface. And yet by Him and through Him, the Spirit of God would rush not just to Him, but to all His people. The coming of the King of Israel in Jesus Christ is the ultimate unexpected choosing of God. Because in his life, death, and resurrection, God chooses the unchosen way and and chooses victory in terrible execution and death. Jesus is the one that on the surface ticks none of the boxes for Israel's rule and reign, which is the exact objection of the people of Israel. This is why they were furious at Jesus because he does not pretend to the throne. He does not grasp for power, but instead surrenders power, surrenders the throne, and by his surrender to his Father's will, he becomes the rightful heir to the throne. Jesus, the rightful son of Jesse, the rightful heir of the rule and reign, the rightful recipient of the promise of Judah. He is the one who is crowned not with gold and he does not conquer by his sword, but he is the rightful conquering king who is instead conquered on behalf of his people. And when you see Jesus crucified, you should hear God's words ring out once again. Man looks on the outward appearance but God looks at the heart. When Jesus is crucified before your eyes, you are meant to see truly and rightly what is there before you. It is the heart of God on display. It is the heart of the true King of Israel, the heir of Judah, crucified. Chosen for the unchosen. Choosing to bring them home in this way. All of those reasons that you are terrified that you might be exposed and unveiled before all people. Those deep and dark hidden reasons. Those things that are in your heart that only God can see. Those 
are the reasons that Jesus chooses to die on your behalf. Because the deep darkness of your heart that lies hidden before all people, that is the prison in which you live. The sin that you hold on to. The enemy that God will himself wrestle down into the grave. David will see, ultimately, he is tragically like us. The narrative of the book of Samuel will turn And he, even he, will be exposed. And what what is deep in his heart will be brought to the surface. And we will know, as Israel knows, there must be a better king. Even than David, there must be a better king. That king is before you with a sign over his head. Here is Jesus, King of the Jews. The crucified God. The unexpected conquering King who conquers for you. You hidden, forgotten, despised people. God on your behalf becomes the despised one. If you are here this morning and you are hiding in your shame, afraid that it might be brought into the light of day, and you are working so hard to be good enough, stop the charade. You can fool everyone around you long enough as long as they don't get to know you well enough. But God sees you, and he sees all of you. You are not fooling him, and he stands before you, welcoming you. Come to him. And if you are a Christian, you're a church person, you are doing all the things that you're supposed to be. But you are still finding all of your hope and security and your proficiency, you need to see the cross again. All of those things that you are putting and pushing to the exterior and choosing to define yourself by, your gifting, your proficiency, it is not enough. And it was never why God loved you. You are not the firstborn son. Even me, firstborn son. You were never that kind of firstborn son whom God chose because it made the most sense. He's always known you as you are. You are laboring under a weight that you are never meant to labor under. Give, give it up. Let the act of the king define who you are all the way down to your core. Let him be your king, even over that thing, that unnamed darkness that holds you tight. He sees you, and yet he loves you. It is the great, unexpected goodness of God. This is the way he is. 
Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank You that our hope does not lie in our own proficiency. We thank You that all of this stuff that we push to the exterior, even the stuff that we put our hope in, that is not what You weigh us by. And mercifully, we are not weighed even by the things that shame us. We are not judged or evaluated based on those things either. You are our King. And You choose to step into our place that we might be evaluated by our hero. God, we are so grateful for Your unexpected kindness towards us. The hero of the story in the Bible is always You. And we are grateful that the hero of our story can also be You. Jesus, I pray that You would remove all hope and our strength away from us. Whether we are near to You or far from You, God, I pray that You will rob us of all those other crutches, all of those means of delusion, that you will angle all these spotlights on yourself, showing us who you really are, sufficient to save again and again. God, correct our vision. Help us to see rightly. Help us most of all to see you. At your side, we find healing and mercy. We thank you, King Jesus. Amen.